You are listening to the Connect Over Coffee podcast, the show that brings you hope and inspires you to embrace the spirit of overcoming. Each month, we deliver the latest and greatest information on progress and advances in ovarian cancer screening, diagnosis, treatment, and survivorship. Now here's your host, Runsi Sen. Let's connect over coffee. Hello, Overcomers, and welcome to this episode of Connect Over Coffee. I'm Runsi, the founder of Overcome, and today I have the absolute honor and pleasure to be joined by Dr. Ursula Matalonis. So Dr. Matalonis is the chief of the Division of Gynecologic Oncology at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, and she's also a professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and considered one of the greatest giants in the space of ovarian cancer. Cancer. Dr. Matt Lonis is also our esteemed advisory board member. So we have a lot to chat with her today about maintenance therapy in ovarian cancer and all the latest and the greatest advances that are happening in this space. So grab your coffee or your favorite beverage. I have mine. And let's join Dr. Matt Lonis for this thought-provoking discussion. And as I always say, please share this information with anyone who may benefit from all the pearls of wisdom that Dr. Matalonis is going to share with us today. So with that, a warm welcome to you, Dr. Matalonis, to this episode of Connect Over Coffee. Always such an honor and pleasure to have you with us. Rosie, it's, it's a great pleasure to see you and to be here today and talk to everybody. So, you know, once again, thank you for all that you do for, for Overcome and, um, you know, all, all the, all the, the help, the inspiration, and the hope that you provide so many folks. So thank you so much. Thank you. That's so kind. So um, Dr. Madlonis, I have a lot of questions, but before we get into the details, um, can you briefly just help explain what is maintenance therapy in ovarian cancer and how has the definition changed over the years? Sure. So, you know, maintenance therapy really became... um, a more commonly used term uh, after the approvals of bevacizumab, which is an antibody to vascular endothelial growth factor, um, and then to PARP inhibitors um, when they were originally, you know, initially used and still are used uh, for women who have platinum sensitive recurrent ovarian cancer get into remission. And then that remission is maintained with treatment. So same with, with bevacizumab into remission um, with chemotherapy and then the uh, drug, whether it's bevacizumab or PARP inhibitor is used to continue to, you know, really hold the cancer down um, and prevent it from being active, prevent it from, from growing. So to me, maintenance is really maintaining a response, keeping things in check. Um, as opposed to a new treatment, which would, to me, would mean that someone's cancer is breaking through that former treatment, and now you need a different strategy. So that would be a new treatment, um, or to do nothing. Um, and, and basically, you know, for someone's getting treatment, they have a good response, but maybe, um, you know, she says, look, I, I want to, I'm going to break from treatment. Um, or someone's having side effects and you really need them to um, recover from those side effects before going on to something different. Wonderful. Thank you. And so um, the other question that I, that's always on my mind, because when we talk about mutations, uh, you know, we primarily focus on BRCA, right? Right. One and two, but as we understand, there are many different other kinds of mutations that um, don't get as much focus. So um, can you tell us about the different kinds of mutations that exist in the genes and as well as in the tumor of a, uh, of an overcomer? And what is the impact of this, these different kinds of mutations on choosing the appropriate treatment yeah. for um, ovarian cancer? So the, it's a great question. And I think, you know, we, we, we derive mutation data from, from essentially two sources. One would be from the germline. Mm-hmm. So um, basically somebody has cells from their body, not tumor cells, but blood cells, um, you know, skin cells that, that are, that are tested um, 
for any any aberrations or any changes within certain genes that would uh, put that person at higher risk for developing a certain cancer. So, and that that means that that mutation, if found, let's say it's it's BRCA one or two, would mean that that mutation is present in every cell in the body. So it's germline. Um, you know, just again, th- think of whole whole person, whole body. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the next set of uh, genetic information we get um, that sort of pertains to this is really around uh, the, the cancer. Um, so what is going on within the cancer that also could be uh, a mutation? There are other changes that happen. Um, sometimes, you know, <clears throat> genes will, will delete themselves or sometimes genes will will sort of multiply, <clears throat> sorry, but um, we're really looking for, for changes in a cancer that would make that cancer more susceptible to a specific treatment, or for example, that we would want to avoid a certain uh, treatment for. Um, so, you know, both of those pieces of information are important. Um, the germline is, is important for, um, predicting in the future what what that individual might be at more risk for. So if that person's found to have a BRCA2 mutation, um, that person would be more susceptible to breast ovarian cancer, um, melanoma, pancreas cancer, um, male breast cancer and prostate cancer uh, for men. So that's, again, it's really important just that people understand that you just really need to think about they're they're interconnected, obviously, um, but that these pieces of information really really tell us um, different things. Sometimes they can give you confounding changes too, and that they don't necessarily match, and that's a problem as well. Um, but then there, as you mentioned, as you alluded to, there are other other changes that can happen besides BRCA one two, and that would be Rad fifty one C, Rad fifty one D. There are at least eleven genes, so nine, uh, you know, in addition to BRCA1 and 2, that confer increased susceptibility to developing ovarian cancer. So they're the Lynch genes. So there are four different Lynch genes that we look for. Uh, and Lynch syndrome is comprised of colon cancer, ovarian cancer, and uterine cancer. Um, BRCA1, 2, I've mentioned uh, already. Some of the others, you know, have stronger uh, propensity to develop breast cancer, like RAD51, CD, BRIP1, et cetera. Um, so it's, again, it's important to look at the, look at the mutations, talk with a genetic counselor or geneticist um, about someone's risk, because you can't just say, oh, I've got a high-risk mutation. I'm therefore going to develop X. Um, you know, some of these mutations will, in, in again, increase, uh, the ability to, you know, develop colon cancer, certain skin cancers, et cetera. Um, and then in the tumor, so the tumor is more for prediction of responsiveness. So if we see a BRCA mutation in the cancer, but we don't see it in the germline, um, that means that, and you, and you, and you, you know, these results have been confirmed and, you, that, that means that that person is not, that's not, they're not going to uh, confer that risk to family members mm-hmm. down, down, you know, through generations, mm-hmm. but that they will respond better to, uh, to drugs like PARP inhibitors and to part into, to platinum because of that genetic risk that exists within, uh, within the cancer. Um, and again, you know, sometimes tests are, you know, done at different places. Sometimes they're done for research purposes. I mean, it's really important that you know, these, these CLIA approved, meaning the kind of a laboratory uh, approval tests are done um, and, uh, and are, you know, done by reputable, uh, you know, institutions or, uh, or companies when, when results uh, come about, because they're important. They're important for, for own personal risk. They're important for your family members' risks, but then they're also important for determination of, of treatment choices and how we approach uh, somebody with treatment. So where does, uh, I've heard these, um, this thing from a few of our survivors and overcomers, where does ATM mutation fall in this space, if at all? Yeah, I mean, you know, ATM is, 
um, a mutation within um, the DNA repair pathway. So in, in, you know, in DNA, when double strand breaks or single strand breaks happen within DNA, they're just a load and host of proteins um, that can be um, uh, altered or changed. And ATM is one of them. And it's, it's, it's sort of behind uh, things like PARP, it's behind ATR, but uh, in terms of drug development, but, but there are drugs that inhibit um, aberrant or abnormal ATM uh, proteins. So I think those are kind of up and coming. Um, you mostly see, you know, you see changes within the cancer around ATM mutations, but I think it's best that when someone gets a genetic test report, um, that they, especially the germline, that they really go over that carefully, um, with their physician and, uh, and if, if available, a genetic counselor. Okay. So, um, for the platinum sensitive population, what is exciting in the horizon that you would like to share with us? And if you could tell us about some of the innovative trials in development or currently recruiting for um, this population, that would be great. Yeah. So, you know, platinum sensitive is, is a, um, you know, I think there, there, there are ways of trying to um, do a better job with with platinum chemotherapy. So, you know, adding medications to chemotherapy that either augment um, platinum's responsiveness or try to mitigate some of the toxicities that, you know, you may have seen with, with adding something else to, uh, to platinum. You know, I think it's, it's definitely an area that needs more, more study um, and more efforts and certainly more clinical trials. Um, so I, I think that it, there's not just a, you know, I, I think that a lot of the medications that we use in the platinum resistant setting, um, you know, as you, as you discover medications that are, um, active in the platinum resistant, then they can kind of trickle over in the platinum sensitive setting, you know, still to date the, in, in somebody who's got a platinum sensitive tumor, meaning that the cancer has grown, um, at least six months or more after the receipt of last platinum, um, still platinum ends up being the most, uh, you know, useful medication. But I mean, just to give you an example of a, of a trial that's trying to, you know, sort of build upon platinum sensitivity is, is a trial that we're working on with um, University of Pennsylvania. So Penn is running this study. Um, it's called the Capri trial. But we also have another study um, that's similar to it too. So we have two trials that are kind of asking the same question, but basically it's, it's for women who have a high grade serous cancer um, who receive platinum, then go on a PARP inhibitor, mm -hmm. but they're on that PARP inhibitor for more than six months. Mm -hmm. um, and what sometimes happens is, you know, you, we're, we're, we're like managing and watching somebody in a PARP inhibitor so closely um, that you can see just minute CA125 changes going up a little bit, and you can see a little bit of growth. Um, and then the question is, what do you what do you do at that point? You know, you don't really necessarily want to switch to a, you know kind of a cytotoxic chemotherapy again um, because you know you're gonna you're gonna give somebody side effects. You're gonna potentially induce you know more, you know, drug resistance. So, um, the, the trial is really designed to add something called an ATR inhibitor. So it's again, another, another type of a molecule that's, that's involved in DNA repair to try to resensitize or again, trick the cancer cell into becoming uh, platinum sensitive PARP inhibitor sensitive to kind of re resensitizing the cancer cell to a PARP inhibitor. Um, and I've definitely seen it work. And I think that's, that's the, you know, those trials take time mm. and, um, you know, not everyone is, is eligible for the study. Um, you know, sometimes the, the, the trials require a BRC mutation, sometimes they don't, but this is one way of, of trying to 
continue to make that cancer cell, you know, continue to platinum sensitive, continue to make it sensitive to PARP inhibitors. And hopefully, you know, in the future, if, if need be, if ever need to, someone needs to go back on platinum to, to, to retain that platinum sensitivity and, you know, potentially augmenting it. And I think we'll have to see about that. Okay. So those are the kind of, you know, areas that, that are, that are thought upon. You know, I think that the, the way that the FDA still thinks about, you know, drug development is still around these platinum sensitive and platinum resistant um, kind of silos. Uh, so, but I think we also know that if someone's platinum resistant, it doesn't mean you can't reuse platinum again. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the cells can can react to to platinum. And again, that's a little bit off the off your question. Um, but I I I think that we need a bigger effort to really come up with some you know novel ideas. And it's really around resensitizing cells to to a PARP inhibitor if they've been on a PARP inhibitor, because the the recurrences tend not to be so fast growing. They're slower. So they're more amenable uh, to some potentially slight manipulation to again, resensitize the cancer cell to a PARP inhibitor. Okay. So um, you talked about PARP and so just going a little deeper on that. So we know that Mm -hmm. PARP has been approved for frontline as well as recurrence treatment at this point in time. So, but can it be used successfully for recurrence after being already used upfront and Help us understand this in a little more detail. Yeah, it's a really good question. It, it definitely comes up in practice. And I think the only the only data that we have is a trial that hasn't been published yet. So I think it's, you know, it'll be it'll be good to 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 dig into that trial when it's been published. But it's the Oreo study where where women, you know, were on a PARP inhibitor previously, they develop recurrence the cancer still is platinum sensitive. They get platinum. They're still sensitive to platinum and they either did not go on a PARP inhibitor and in this particular trial, it's a lap rib or they do go on a lap rib. And, you know, there is some benefit to the lap rib to basically reusing a lap rib. Um, and again, again it, it's, it's not a, you know, these are, th- this situation doesn't always happen so, so neatly because a lot of times, um, you know, someone goes on a PARP inhibitor. I, mean, I think it's going to happen in the upfront setting. Someone's newly diagnosed. They're going to go on a lap rib for two years or niraparib for three years. Mm-hmm. Um, they're going to stop that drug. And then a year later, they're going to have recurrence. So I think that's, that's the situation. In the recurrent setting, you know, someone, someone has platinum sensitive disease. They recur platinum PARP inhibitor probably continue on the PARP inhibitor until the cancer starts to grow, but maybe they're on the PARP inhibitor for a year or two. So they're still technically platinum sensitive, go back on platinum. Should they go on a PARP inhibitor? That's the kind of information we just don't have. And I think there just has to be a, a discussion about, you know, how, how well did that individual do on the PARP inhibitor? Mm-hmm. Um, how, how, you know, how long was that individual on the PARP inhibitor for? What was the what was the recurrence? What did that recurrence look like? Was it a very slow, you know, rising CA125 and just some minimal growth of cancer cells? Or was it really, you know, some, you know, worsening of peritoneal disease, developed small bowel obstruction? Um, then then that might not make sense. But I, so I think the latter setting, we don't have data for somebody who's received the PARP inhibitor really had some time off of it, then recurred. Um, there, there is some benefit from, from doing it, but just like every decision that we make, it has to be a careful you know, risk-benefit decision um, with the individual um, about side effects, about benefit. Is there something else that, would, that would, could be potentially better? Um, all those sort of things. So what I'm hearing you say is basically when it comes to PARP in the front line and PARP again for recurrence, there is no standard protocol at this t- at this time. Yeah, I don't I don't think there's a standard protocol. No, I think that we you know we reuse we reuse platinum. The question is 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 it this is it the same with a PARP inhibitor or is it is it are you going to get the same benefit from the reuse of a PARP inhibitor 
as we know, to a certain extent, you do get, you know, if the cancer is platinum sensitive and then on second use of the platinum, um, you know, I think the platinum tends to work a little bit less well, but it still can work. Mm-hmm. And the question is, is that true for the PARP inhibitor? Um, so I, 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 I don't know. And I, and I, and I, so I think that, you know, another way of thinking about this would be um, testing, for example, a, a kind of a new uh, PARP inhibitor combination. So mm-hmm. someone has a PARP inhibitor, they recur, you put them back on platinum, they go into remission and you want to do something else for maintenance besides a PARP inhibitor that, you know, there are different PARP inhibitor combinations being tested. Some having, you know, efficacy, some still in testing. Um, so I think that may be, may be a way to go. And then try to, try to personalize, mean, we're not here yet, but try to personalize that PARP inhibitor therapy based upon genetic changes within the cancer. Um, and again, that's, that would be my, my hope for the future, but I don't think we're quite there yet. Okay. Um, so PARP resistance, right? Um, so briefly, um, we know that it is, it is a huge matter of concern when you get, you get resistant to PARP. So what are some of the trials that are currently running, which are, which are looking into this and what is in your opinion, the best way to mitigate this when PARP resistance develops and what should our overcomers know and ask their physician mm-hmm. this? Yeah, I think it, you know, it always depends upon, again, as I sort of mentioned before, is the, is the, is the pace of the recurrence is what that, what that recurrence looks like clinically. Um, is it, is it solely a CA125 that's increasing? Um, but maybe someone's, you know, scan, they feel great and their scans aren't so bad, then you could say, look, you know, you're doing okay on the PARP inhibitor. Let's keep it going because it could be kind of mollifying the, the growth of the tumor. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some growth, but it's growth that we're going to kind of just watch and, and a small amount of change we're going to um, accept. Um, if someone's on a PARP inhibitor and it's a, it's a pretty significant recurrence, then I, then I, I, I don't, I don't tend to think about, um, or they've been on it for less than six months or the, the cancer is, is pretty briskly growing. I, I don't, I don't think about another PARP inhibitor trial or, or something along those lines. I'll think about something else like an antibody drug conjugate or, you know, uh, a unique, uh, immunotherapy study, um, different chemotherapy, uh, you know, really try to write really try to talk about options that are more traditional um, versus uh, clinical trials as well. Okay. So now for the uh, platinum resistant patients, I know yeah. that, that you have been involved in some groundbreaking work and you've been on the news with all this Soraya trial and the great, uh, you know, the statistics and the, uh, and the numbers that came out of this. So can you play, uh, tell us about this trial a little more in detail and what, you know, what information should our, all our platinum resistant overcomers know and be hopeful for as far as this trial is concerned? Yeah. I mean, I think a, a word about platinum resistant, I think that's where there are definitely more trials. And, you know, we, with, with platinum resistant cancer, you know, with, especially with, with um, endpoints of response rate. So basically how well is the cancer shrinking to the chemotherapy or the treatment? Um, those studies can be with, you know, done with some speed to try to make a determination, you know, this is something good to do, or this is something not so good to do. But so getting back to your question um, about the Soraya study. So the Soraya study was a a single arm trial. Um, A little over a hundred patients were were enrolled. It was a a international study. So besides sites in the United States, there were sites in Spain and sites in uh, the UK. Israel. And to get onto the trial, there are a few eligibility uh, requirements. One was, you know, the, the presence of platinum resistant cancer. And then, and that was basically 
the, the physician saying, okay, you know, the, the cancer grew X amount of time um, uh, since last platinum. Uh, and it was left to the, to the treating team to, to, you know, come up with, with that, with that decision. Um, uh, so the platinum resistance, there had to be prior receipt of bevacizumab or Avastin. So somebody could have received that in the upfront setting. Um, somebody could have received that as part of a platinum sensitive or a platinum, uh, resistant, um, uh, uh, regimen. Um, and then uh, they have to sign consent to make sure that the cancer contained the folate receptor alpha. So high levels of expression, meaning when, when the cancer is, is sliced and stained um, with, this, uh, with this antibody, that the expression levels were a lot, meaning high. Mm-hmm. Um, and if that were the case, somebody would be, would be eligible. Um, and it was a single arm trial. So everybody received mervituximab and mervituximab is a drug, which is an antibody drug conjugate against the folate receptor alpha. So it makes sense, right? That if you're going to give somebody a drug that that drug can actually get to the cancer cell and basically attach itself to the cancer cell. So it's an antibody drug. So there's a little drug that is attached to the antibody via a linker or a, you know, it's conjugated or linked to that antibody. Um, and, you know, we saw, this is via press release. So I'm not, this is all in public, public domain. Um, we saw about a 32% um, response rate, which was, uh, which the, the, the original, um, kind of sort of bar to jump over was, was 12%. Um, so it's 32% times. Yeah, exactly. That's correct. Yeah. Um, and, and the other important thing is that, um, when a trial is being considered for, you know, potential drug approval, there has to be a, something called a blinded independent central review or bicker, um, so that somebody else on the sidelines, uh, radiologists specifically see those scans are all anonymized um, and basically say, okay, did, did, do I agree as a blinded radiologist with what the investigator or treating physician agreed with? Um, and the, the blinded independent central review was around 31%. So actually quite, quite uh, concordant. Mm-hmm. Um, the other um, important piece of information was that for the women who did have a response, um, the important measurement is the duration of response. And that duration of response was just under six months, was 5.9 months. Mm-hmm. Um, and that also was kind of in line with what, uh, you know, we wanted to see within the trial. Um, Mervituximab has been, you know, used in literally hundreds of folks. Um, the side effects have been, you know, a little bit of neuropathy, um, a reversible um, eye toxicity that can be seen um, with antibody drug conjugates, a little bit of fatigue, a little bit of bone marrow suppression, but overall a very well tolerated therapy. So I think, you know, this would be a potentially, um, you know, if all goes right, another, another drug in the armamentarium uh, for, for women who have platinum resistant disease, but it's really taking, you know, bevacizumab doesn't, doesn't have a biomarker. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't have a way of saying, okay, you, your cancer is going to respond better than someone else's cancer. Um, but here you have the biomarker of folate receptor alpha expression or how much protein is present in the cancer. Um, and the higher, the better. So if you don't have it, you don't get the drug. Um, so it's really, it's, 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 a, it's a way of making certain that you're really giving the medication to the folks who are going to benefit the most from it. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned 5.9 months. So, um, so, so for, for this particular drug, when it's out in the market and people are actually able to receive for the ones that, that are eligible, what does it do to the overall survival and the progression-free survival? Mm. For, for yeah, so um, good point. So, the, so the, the, that duration of response that I mentioned was 5.9 months. So that is a, that is a, that is a median Mm-hmm. So, you know, half, half the folks 
had better um, and some folks had a little bit less. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the other important point is, uh, you know, just like when we're, we're, you know, back in the back in the old days, uh, we would we would wait for trials to mature and not release trial data and only only publish something when you know you've had several years of follow up. Mm-hmm. It's that's not the way now. So now, it, it's, as soon as you get a readout, I mean, you saw this with this trial. There was a press release. It's not a paper. It's not a presentation. It's a press release. But that's how trials are now um, presented: is via a press release with, oh yes, an upcoming um, presentation at a meeting and an eventual uh, publication in a peer-reviewed journal. So. Now I'm forgetting your question. I went off and told a tangent. Oh, no, I was just asking that you mentioned the 5.9 months. Yes. My question was, yes. what yes. does it yes. do? Yes, 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 yes. Okay. Yes. So, so this trial is just one arm. Um, there's another trial called Mirasol, which is ongoing, and that is a randomized trial. So mm-hmm. women are randomized to either Merbituximab or they're randomized to standard uh, chemotherapy. So that's the, that's the kind of trial that will tell you and give you a better sense in a comparative way what mervituximab does in competition against standard chemotherapy. So in this study, you know, certainly we're going to have, because we're going to follow those 106 women very carefully, um, you know, what is that, what is that progression-free interval for everybody? Um, I don't know that we haven't, that hasn't been publicly disclosed yet. Um, what's the, what's, what's survival like again, um, more time has to pass mm-hmm. before that kind of information is, um, is going to be, uh, available. Okay. Um, so, um, just a quick question on switch maintenance, because I, he- I hear that all the time, read about this all the time. So, uh, if you were to explain a switch maintenance therapy, um, what would you say to us about that? And, does it have any impact on the uh, progression-free and the overall survival? Yeah, switch maintenance to me, I, I guess the way you'd think about it is that you're, you're switching from, from one medication to another medication. So basically it's, it's like if you were, if somebody was on carboplatin, gemcitabine and bevacizumab, mm-hmm. um, but then maintenance was bevacizumab. So you're not, you're not switching anything you're continuing um, maintenance bevacizumab. So, so no switch, you're, you're just continuing what you've been on. Switch maintenance to me would be, okay, I'm on carboplatinum and taxol and I've you know completed six or eight cycles. My cancer has gone into remission. I'm now going to switch mm-hmm. to a PARP inhibitor as maintenance. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that to me would, would mean switch. You're switching to a different strategy, uh, kind of a different um, type of a medication to maintain that response. So I think the switch maintenance is kind of what we were talking about before around PARP inhibitors, um, but that drugs like bevacizumab, AKA Avastin is not switched. You're just continuing that same medication. So when you do, when you decide to do switch maintenance versus the continuation, as you talked about, I mean, why would someone then do the switch maintenance if the the progression free and overall survival in both cases remained the same? Because help me understand this a little bit. Yeah, so again, it so the that the, the switch maintenance concept applies in both women with recurrence as well as newly diagnosed uh, cancer, and the decision around maintenance has to be made up front. Um, so. If you have somebody who's got a mucinous tumor or perhaps a low-grade serous cancer, you know, PARP inhibitors are not, they would not be what I would be thinking about using. Um, but if somebody has an advanced low-grade serous cancer and she's getting carboplatinum gem bevacizumab, um, then we know that bevacizumab has activity in low-grade serous cancer. So that to me would make sense. I wouldn't even think about a PARP inhibitor. Mm-hmm. Somebody has a high-grade serous cancer. Um, you know, again, why would you use bevacizumab up front? Why would you use bevacizumab in the recurrence setting? Well, it's got FDA approval. Um, the bevacizumab enhances the response to chemotherapy. So, someone has cancer that is um, growing quickly. Um, there's a large disease burden. 
um, and you want to kind of get somebody into, you know, start the cancer to grow or start to cause the cancer to regress quickly, you might add bevacizumab. Why might you not add bevacizumab? Well, two things come to mind, three, three things come to mind. One would be that individual has significant hypertension mm-hmm. um, and the bevacizumab might and will likely make that hypertension a little bit worse. So you have to be, doesn't, doesn't mean you shouldn't do it, but you have to be careful about it. Um, that individual is at risk for a gastrointestinal perforation. So you look at the CAT scan and you realize that somebody has an, an implant of tumor that's right up against the small intestine or, or burring right into the large intestine. Um, that might not be what I wanted to do because that's those, those individuals could be at higher risk of developing a gastrointestinal perforation. And the third would be kidney dysfunction. Somebody has an elevated serum creatinine um, and you know, the use of bevacizumab can sometimes make creatinines a little bit worse. So those would be reasons not to use bevacizumab. So again, for me, it's a, it's a, it's a risk benefit ratio every time, every time I think about it. But if somebody has high grade serous ovarian cancer, if they have an underlying BRC mutation, if they have, you've done an HRD test, um, in someone who's newly diagnosed, their HRD that's present. So the myriad score is above 42. Um, I mean, those are exactly the folks and they're responding to chemotherapy. Well, those are exactly the folks where I would think about using a PARP inhibitor front. Thank you. And this um, segues so well to my next question, which was like, I was going to ask you that we understand that there are several types of ovarian cancer, right? I mean, not just one, oh. but um, so in general, uh, maintenance treatment is primarily used as an overall blanket solution for the patient. So what challenges do you see in this and how do you envision the future of the uh, personalized ovarian cancer treatment that it continues to get specific to the type of ovarian cancer that the patient has and, and the overcomer herself? Yeah. I mean, I think a really good example of that is in, in women who have low grade serous cancers. And so they're, you know, it's not a, it's not a common diagnosis, but it is definitely one we see. Um, and you know, so that, so few things, one is, um, the, uh, it's, you know, it's always, it's, it's always nice to see that pathology confirmed, Sometimes, you know, if the, if the, if the path is read at a, at, you know, maybe a, a hospital where n- not many, um, you know, women with GYN cancers are being diagnosed that you'd want to have that corroborated by a, a GYN based pathologist. Um, but there, you know, there's a tr- trial ongoing currently uh, through the NRG that is asking the question, okay, so can we for, for women with stage two to stage through stage four, low-grade serous cancer, can we not use carboplatinum and paclitaxel chemotherapy? And can we use a drug called an aromatase inhibitor called letrozole mm-hmm. um, in place of chemotherapy? So that trial is ongoing currently. Um, but I think in the absence, and that's being, yeah, it's being uh, compared to chemotherapy, but in the absence of being placed in a clinical trial, when I see low-grade serous uh, uh, folks, um, I, you know, we still, the standard of care remains chemotherapy, carboplatin, paclitaxel, um, post-surgery, but I will 99% of the time, um, place that individual on an aromatase inhibitor really based on Dr. Gershenson's work from MD Anderson a number of years ago, um, that showed that the use of aromatase inhibitor can have real, real power, um, for women with low-grade serous cancer, so I, that to me is kind of standard of care, um, and that's really, you know, taking a taking a targeted therapy, a hormonal therapy. Uh, aromatase is, aromatase inhibitor is a drug that prevents the um, peripheral conversion of testosterone to estrogen. So you've taken away the estrogen supply that could potentially um, fuel a, a low-grade serous ovarian cancer um, cell. Um, and, and using a personalized therapy in a specific type of, uh, of ovarian cancer. And a PARP inhibitor is the same, to me, the same um, kind of a therapy. It's really personalized for high-grade serous cancers that have underlying DNA repair problems 
um, that really shows sensitivity to, uh, to platinum-based treatment. Okay. So I have a few questions from a few of our overcomers that you know we would love to share with you. So this first question is about um, uh, side effects from treatment, right? So she she's asking that she's been on uh, the um, laparib for a long time and for about four years. And so is are there any studies out there that have lowered the dosage to have because her CA125 has been four, yeah, two years. I mean, what should she do? Right. So it's a good question. Um, so the way I think about it now is, yeah, so I don't, so the answer, the answer to that specific question is no. There are no studies that have looked at lowering the dose. Um, and I think you just want to be careful but because you don't want to have a dose on board that is too low so that's subtherapeutic. So I think that's really important. You obviously don't want to use a dose that's too toxic either. So it's really just getting that medication, um, you know, as, as tolerable as possible for somebody, but not lowering the dose too, too much. Um, you know, somebody has been on a medication for years. I'm assuming that that individual has, has recurrence because in the upfront setting, um, we don't use the PARP inhibitors for that long. So for somebody who's got a newly diagnosed BRCA mutated ovarian cancer, the SOLA1 study looked at two years of elaparib with a hard stop at two years. Mm -hmm. And then the niraparib data is around three years with a hard stop then. So in the recurrent setting, someone's been on for four years, you know, I start to have, I, you know, I don't, yeah, I, you know, I, I start to have conversations about, you know, you're, you're doing well. I mean, I think four years is a good amount of time. Um, it's, it's more when someone starts to get to like seven, eight, 10 years, when I'm sort of thinking about the longer term side effect and the longer term side effects, but, you know, obviously besides fatigue, et cetera, um, is this risk of acute myelogenous leukemia and myelodysplastic syndrome. Um, I don't think we have data. I'm, not, I'm just saying, I don't think we don't have data. We do not have data. Um, about the duration of treatment, um, you know, four years of elaparib or four years of niraparib or caparib versus seven years. Mm -hmm. um, what we do have is the trials that, you know, solo one um, and then uh, trials like solo two and then Nova um, and, and breaking them into uh, you know, BRCA positive or, 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 or BRCA wild type, meaning not a, not a mutated gene. And I think one sees that, that as someone, the, the, the risk of acute leukemia and myelodysplastic syndrome goes up. So it increases in the setting of, uh, you know, recurrence. Mm -hmm. um, and then somebody who has an underlying I think germline bracket mutation. So, you know, again, in the recurrence setting, that's somebody who's had initial chemotherapy and then had platinum chemotherapy again, and then maybe went on a PARP inhibitor and then maybe some intervening therapies then. So the, the more treatment, unfortunately, that risk of AML and MDS goes up a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, and then it definitely does seem that the underlying germline bracket mutation uh, like I think, I think, I think based upon the data that we've seen predisposes somebody to a, to a slightly higher risk of AML MDS compared to somebody who does not have a germline BRCA mutation. Um, because you can take someone who's on solo one, who's newly diagnosed, you know, that risk of leukemia in solo one was about 1.5%. And then you take somebody in solo two, who's got recurrent germline BRCA mutated cancer the risk is 8%. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's a differential there. Um, so again, more chemotherapy, more treatment, underlying BRCA mutation that's germline, not just tumor, um, that, that individual has an increased risk. So, so somebody who's been on for four years, I'd want to know, do they have a germline BRCA mutation? Um, you know, how are they doing on it? Uh, how their blood counts doing on things? You know, four years to me is still is still okay. I would continue on as long as somebody is doing well. But you know, constantly, constantly, you know, as you learn more, 
and you and you take in more data from from trials, um, you know, to constantly tell tell people, okay, so this is what this trial now shows. This is what we're seeing um, is to update update our patients on kind of the latest news uh, about treatments and not just treatment efficacy, but treatment toxicities as well. Absolutely. And then let 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 there be a conversation um, about what do you do? Do you want to stop? Do you want to continue on? Um, obviously, we're going to have our recommendations. We're going to need to tell that individual what we think because that's our job. Um, but that individual, our patient, can say, you know what? No, I'm sorry. I don't think I want to do that. Or okay, I'm 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 in in that with you. Let let's keep going. Yeah. Thank you. Um, and so. Another question that we have is, uh, what are the uh, most effective maintenance drugs for a first recurrence when HRD and BRCA negative? And what are the Mm -hmm. most common side effects of each? Yeah. So I think, again, the maintenance treatments we have are bevacizumab, aka Avastin, or a PARP inhibitor. Um, In the setting of platinum-resistant recurrence, and that individual's, their cancer is responding to platinum, um, PARP inhibitors have an approval. I mean, there's nothing in the, the FDA package insert basically says recurrence in response to platinum. There's no stipulation about the level of response. There's no stipulation about the type of ovarian cancer. So the physician has to guide that individual. Um, you know, again, as I said before, histologies, toxicities, um, who's going to respond best to a drug like Bev? Who's going to respond best to a PARP inhibitor? Um, I think in that situation, in somebody who's got platinum sensitive cancer, HRD is negative, or we call it HRP, homologous recombination proficient, um, BRCA wild type. You know, if that individual is having a great response to, um, to platinum based chemotherapy, I you know, I think it makes sense to think about a PARP inhibitor. If the response is perhaps, you know, there's it, and I sluggish is not the right word. Um, I guess if there's uh, some indication that the platinum is just not as working as well, though I think there are trials now that show that, you know, regardless if the patient has a partial response versus a, versus a complete response, the benefit to a PARP inhibitor is, is essentially the same. Um, I would see how she's doing with treatment. You know, is she having a lot of bone marrow suppression or her platelets dropping or her, you know, a neutrophil counts dropping. Then I might, I might not think about a PARP inhibitor because then maybe the PARP inhibitor is going to be too toxic. Um, So I don't, I don't think there's one, one treatment that's best. Um, I think both have to be considered, Um, but you can do a little bit more um, sort of trying to figure out from that individual's perspective, um, what might be better for that for that person mm-hmm. uh, based upon side effect profile and the responsiveness of the cancer to the treatment. Such a fascinating conversation. As we uh, close in, I, I have the very last question to you. Um, so there's a lot happening in the ovarian cancer space, which is so promising. So in terms of what you see emerging in the future, uh, what message of overcoming would you have for our audience that's listening. Yeah. So I think, I, I think we are, there are a lot of different treatments that are being tested. Um, and I think we're, we're gathering data like antibody drug conjugates. You know, we talk, we've talked about Mervituximab today, um, but there are others. There's a drug called DS8201A um, there's a drug called XMT1536 or the, and, and their next, next generation. So that's, that's one type of therapy that, um, you know, is going to potentially have worked a little bit differently than a lot of the treatments that we've talked about. Um, I think that there are different ways of trying to stimulate the immune system besides, you know, the traditional immune checkpoint inhibitors, which we know don't have as much activity in ovarian cancer as, as they do in other cancers. Um, and I think there are different types of cellular therapies that are being tested, CAR T cells, natural killer cells, these drugs called bispecific antibodies, um, where, you know, I think, so I think 
everyone's doing the work. Um, and, and so I think the, the great news is there's a lot of clinical trials available. There is a lot of research there, you know, there are you guys in overcome, uh, there's the department of defense. I mean, there's, you know, there, we, we need more funding organizations mm-hmm. to, to fund people, uh, to do the research in the labs and in the clinic, um, and then to fund the clinical trials as well, to really generate new and novel ideas, which are definitely happening. Um, but that needs to can be, uh, continued to be, uh, perpetuated. So, you know, all the different organizations that support ovarian cancer research are just absolutely crucial. Mm-hmm. Um, so that to me is, you know, certainly is a message of hope in that there are definitely lots of new therapies being tested. Um, but we have to make sure that our, that our pipeline of investigators and, you know, laboratory folks are, are being supported and that science is being supported. Um, and I think, you know, COVID hasn't truthfully hasn't slowed anything down. Um, I think it's made, you know, it's infecting people, unfortunately, and, you know, unfortunately causing the deaths of too many people unnecessarily. Um, but in terms of the science and our progress, we're, you know, things are still happening. I mean, that, you know, everyone is, who works in ovarian cancer is dedicated to it, to making it better for patients and, you know, to eventually eradicating it and coming up with a, a screening tool, um, which we're not there, but there's a lot of work going on. So that's, that's the hope that to me, that's the hope. That's, that's wonderful to sign off with. And, and there's so much information that you shared with us today, new novel ideas and information that we did not know. So we are very, very thankful to you, Dr. Matlonis, for your time today. And uh, this was, this was truly a fabulous conversation. So thank you so much for sharing your pearls of wisdom with all of us and overcomers hope this was uh, so beneficial for you because it was for me and everyone else that I'm pretty sure that are listening. So again, please share this uh, far and wide with anyone that may benefit from this information. And we will be back with the next episode of Connect Over Coffee very soon. Until then, you keep talking about ovarian cancer. And as you know, together we can overcome. Thank you and bye. Thank you, Rosie. Take care. Thank you for joining us. Make sure you never miss an episode by clicking the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by our sponsors, GSK and Clovis Oncology, and by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. Be sure to tune in for our next episode. Cheers to overcoming.